Hello, and welcome to Beyond the Breakers, a podcast about shipwrecks, loss, and lessons learned from maritime disasters. My name is Taylor, and I'll be your host. And as always, we want to start out by saying thank you for your support. We're happy to be able to create something that you guys are enjoying, and we're definitely enjoying creating it. I want to shout out our social medias real quick, uh, Beyond the Breakers podcast on Instagram. Our email is beyondthebreakerspod at gmail.com. And on Patreon, we are patreon.com slash beyondthebreakers. And just a quick note that our podcast will always be ad-free, and money from the Patreon just goes towards making the show better. It goes for web hosting and research materials, that kind of thing. With all that stuff out of the way, I'll go ahead and introduce our uh, co-host, Tanner. How are you doing? I'm doing very well. How are you doing? Uh, Not too bad. It's a kind of gloomy, dark day here in Ohio, but that's all right. There's plenty of baseball on TV, and the Reds don't suck, so it's fun. Baseball's fun right now. Reds look good. They look a lot more consistently good than the uh, my Milwaukee Brewers do. Yeah, a little little bit of a slow start, but uh, the season's young, so it'll be fun. I think it's just fun to have some sports that we can actually watch and care about. I'm happy Mm -hmm. after last last season being a little different. Mm -hmm. Well, with all that out of the way... Let's kind of jump into the uh, the meat and potatoes here, and I guess when I say meat and potatoes, that's definitely what this story is. Um, it's kind of back to the focus of the podcast, and we've done a few different things the last few weeks. This week, we will be discussing the Carl D. Bradley. Is that a ship you're familiar with? Uh, it wasn't until I, I read the notes, and then just as a note, I will be probably at times during the show calling this ship the Carl Anderson. <laughs> I don't know why I cannot get this straight in my head. I think it's a combination of just the actor and then conflating it with the Arthur M. Anderson. Right. Uh, which is not a shipwreck and is still sailing the Great Lakes. Very much. <laughs> uh, but uh, yeah, so if I slip up and I, I say that, that is uh, that is totally accidental. <laughs> well, we, I know we've had a few requests to talk about this one. This was a pretty, a pretty big one in Great Lakes, like shipwreck lore. Partly because it is a, one of the more modern shipwrecks, and uh, just the story itself is pretty well documented, and uh, it's interesting. And just like all of these, is interesting. So excited to do this one, and with that stuff taken care of, let's get into it. You ready? I'm ready. Let's do it. So the Carl D. Bradley was constructed in 1927 by the American Shipbuilding Company in Lorraine, Ohio. At the time of her loss, she was actually owned by the uh, U.S. Steel Corporation. Familiar with them, I'm sure. Uh, she's three hundred and thirty. Sorry, six hundred and thirty-nine feet long, sixty-five feet wide, and she drew about thirty feet of water. So this is a large vessel. This is this is a big big boat, and it is in fact a boat because that's what we call these uh, these ships on the Great Lakes. <laughs> See, she was actually the longest vessel on the lakes for twenty-two years, so she held the title of Queen of the Lakes. She was also a self-unloading vessel, which means she was actually able to operate in facility like places that had limited port facilities because she could unload her cargo with equipment she had on board. Uh, she was primarily used to haul limestone and she's actually named uh, after the president of the Michigan Limestone Corporation. He declared her the last word in freighter construction when she was launched. Don't don't do that. <laughs> Never seems to turn out well when we declare I don't I don't why why do people continue to do this? Just- <laughs> 
don't make these big superlative statements about how good your stuff is. <laughs> it's so she actually acted as the flagship for the fleet. They own multiple vessels, but she often carried company officials and guests. Her paint was kept fresh and she's given constant attention. So she's definitely like the darling of the fleet. She's the face of the brand. Uh, an interesting note is that she's fully electric. This is kind of in the time period where uh, ships are shifting to different methods of being you know, operated. But she's the only fleet or she's the only ship in the Bradley fleet that is like that. So the onboard generators power everything. So she's okay, like so fully. Is this, so as opposed to being using steam power? Yeah, basically. Yeah. yeah. Like everything is just powered off the generators rather than, okay. than multiple methods. So it's, a, it's an all in one design. It's, it's basically what you'd expect in a modern um, ship. Okay. So throughout her career, she operated out of Rogers City, Michigan. And that's even though she was technically registered in New York City. But we, uh, shipping registrations are kind of a murky deal. So, especially internationally, but in this case, she's just technically registered in New York City, but she's she's never actually even visits that port. She would operate out of Rogers City, and she actually returns to the city every couple of days. So, as a result of this, most of her crew is actually from that town. Forgot the exact number, but it's something like 80% of the men on board are from that that town. So a lot of the guys are related or at the very least they're close friends. Their families are friends. Their children know each other. The wives, you know, support each other. So it's very much, the ship is very much part of the community. It almost reminds me of um, like a, uh, like a military thing. Like mm-hmm. you see in like movies and stuff, you, like the, the, the military wives supporting each other. Like in, I'm thinking specifically of like, was it we were soldiers? We were soldiers. Yeah, they, uh, they highlight that. And in that film, how they how they highlight that aspect of it. But anyway, just kind of it sort of reminded me of that about how so so many of these men, you know, they have the same job and you know they have this kind of little mini community within a community. Right. So she, like I said, she generally carries limestone and she hauls those from ports on Lake Huron to deep water ports on Lake Erie and Michigan. So she kind of does the same thing quite a bit. She's just kind of running. The same routes, carrying limestone, doing her thing. Being the largest vessel on the lakes, she is normally one of the first to sail through the Straits of Mackinac and break the ice for smaller vessels. So it's kind of a tradition. It's also being where she's located. Rogers City is very close to the Straits of Mackinac. For anyone that's unfamiliar, it's right where Lake Michigan and Lake Huron come together. So you travel from, you know, one to the other through the Straits. And it's a Pretty narrow little strip of land. It's right where Mackinac Island is and all that. It's, it's a really beautiful place. It's a great place to visit, actually. So here, when it talks about being one of the first ships through, you know, breaking the ice for smaller vessel vessels, does the Carl D. Bradley have special ice-breaking capabilities or just the fact that it's a big ship that can get through some of this ice? Um, a little bit of both. I was reading something about that. There's apparently, like... They put like concrete basically in the bow and then like steel plates over it and they plow through it. And then like they Hmm. they get that repaired to begin the season. But that's just like how they begin the season. It's not necessarily like an icebreaker like you'd think of for like the Coast Guard or something like that. Okay, But yeah, mainly because she was big. That's part of it. It's also noted that the crew would often pick up sheared off rivets after sailing in heavy weather. And this will be something that's important later to kind of discuss why this happened. It's a result of the ship bending and twisting in the heavy seas. So, you know, this ship's over 600 feet long. It's going to be having more than one wave interact with it at a time. Like, you've been on a small boat. You know, you go up over the wave. You come back down. And in this case, you know, there's 
multiple waves interacting with the hull. So there's going to be times where the vessel itself is picked up out of the water, supported by multiple waves, and that's going to bend and stress the hull. Mm -hmm. That's not great when you're dealing with certain types of steel. You you don't like picking up pieces of the vehicle you're in (laughs) while you're in it. Uh, It should be noted, though, that in a 1958 inspection, the Coast Guard found no issues, no safety issues on board. So according to the Coast Guard... The ship is good to go. That brings us to November 17th, 1958. Anytime I give you a specific date, that's usually not great. Specific dates are bad. Specific times are worse. <laughs> we'll, we'll get to some times in a second. So on November 17th, she delivers a load of crushed stone to Gary, Indiana. So she's at the very south tip of Lake Michigan when this story starts. So she's then to set sail to Manitowoc, Wisconsin, which is, uh, you know, not too far from where you're at, actually. Mm-hmm. Uh, so the plan was that she would go to Manitowoc, she'd be laid up, and they'd actually overhaul the cargo hold. And she was set to have some pretty major repairs done to modernize and to, you know, strengthen the hull to make sure everything was good. It's important to note that this meant she would be sailing under ballast. So she had no cargo. She's, she's riding pretty high in the water. And, you know, the only thing she has for stability is ballast. Not great when you're sailing into a storm. What ends up happening is she's only a few hours from Manitowoc, and she actually receives an order to return to Port Calisite, which is Roger City. It's the same place, basically. And that is because they basically picked up one more, or they, they, they found one more load for her to take for the season. So rather than, you know, in their season and have the repairs done, they're told to proceed on and return back to their home port. Let's discuss the weather a little bit. Weather's not ideal at the start of this trip. Winds are already around 30 miles an hour, and the forecast is basically for a gale warning. Winds are projected to reach up to 65 miles per hour, and the Bradley's route is going to take it directly into this storm. You know, we don't know to the same degree as like the Alfaro, like where literally you're sailing into a hurricane. But with the weather capabilities they had at the time, like they know it's going to be very heavy weather. It's not a surprise Mm -hmm. to anybody. That brings us to Captain Roland Bryan. He was an experienced man, obviously, to have this job and, you know, been on the lakes for a long time. But he is uh, what we call a heavy weather captain. Oh, nice. Yeah. So uh, I think we said the same thing about the SS Milwaukee's captain. Um, bad weather Bob. Bad weather Bob, that's right. And I think it should just be noted that these Great Lakes sea captains aren't afraid of a whole lot. Uh, I mean, we it, it's a this is a common attitude, and the men on board are used to hard physical work. They wouldn't have thought this was odd. To You might be annoyed because you thought you were done. You thought you were going to be able to, you know, enjoy the off-season and relax and spend time with your families. But sailing into this kind of weather would not have been something that they would have thought was out of place. So let's talk about the route that Brian plots. So the normal route would take them closer to the Michigan shore, but knowing that weather was going to be coming, he decided to sail closer to the Wisconsin side of the lake. So in theory, the landmass of Wisconsin creates a lee where he's not experiencing the worst of the weather. So you're going to have some shelter from the land, basically. Whereas if you were on the other side of the lake, it's had, you know, the waves and the wind have had the whole stretch of that lake to build up. And it's going to be a lot worse as far as the conditions that you experience. It's also noted that the captain does plan this route with his first and second mate. So he's doing a good job of sharing information. Bridge resource management. Bridge resource management. Yes, he's sharing information. Everyone knows what the plan is. And yeah, they, they go ahead and proceed to sail. 
A little bit of background about the weather. So this is actually the result of two storms merging together that creates this. And there's a good chance that this was like a derecho or something like that. Something that we would now be able to see on radar and know that, hey, this is a nasty storm. It had spawned over 30 tornadoes from Texas to Illinois. And it also dumped about two feet of snow in the Dakotas. So, you know, this storm isn't a surprise. Like, it's been working the whole system before it merged. Each system was working its way across the United States. So this is definitely a known thing. The crew would have known what they were sailing into. So as the voyage begins, the ship is riding pretty well, despite the growing seas. Um, the captain makes note of that. And it's also noted that the Bradley is seen passing Milwaukee, Wisconsin, around 4 a.m., So, you know, people still have eyes on it. They have no issues. This isn't even a notable trip, really. It's just them sailing through some moderately rough weather. Around 4 p.m. the same day, she's near Poverty Island. That's when the captain... That's an unfortunate It really is. So that's the point where they need to kind of change directions. You know, you have to adjust ahead to begin to set yourself up to sail through the Straits of Mackinac and all that. So he's going to be no longer going parallel with Wisconsin. He's going to lose that protection that he had. And at this point, the captain is in charge of navigation and the first mate is on watch. So he's, you know, directing everything. Wind speeds are topping out at about 65 miles an hour. Despite that, the Bradley reports that she's riding comfortably with heavy following seats slightly on the starboard quarter. So she's still she's still riding pretty well, basically being pushed with the wind and the wave. So she's kind of working. She's not working against the wave. She's working with them at that point. And that brings me to a very specific time. Something bad's mm-hmm. about to happen. <laughs> at 5.35 PM, there's a loud thud followed by vibrations. No, definitely not something that you would want to uh, have happen at that point. So the first mate turns to look aft and he sees the stern sagging in the water has to be a pretty surreal feeling seeing something like that. Captain Brian, to his credit, does not waste time. He immediately calls for engines to be placed and stop, and he immediately calls for the vessel to be evacuated. The first mate does manage to send a mayday message as the vessel breaks up. And keep in mind, it's all electric-powered from the generator. So when the vessel splits in two, you're no longer connected to the generator. So you didn't have a lot of time. They had to act very quickly to do this. And that message is picked up by the Coast Guard and amateur operators and other ships that are out in these conditions. A little bit about the Bradley's lifeboat situation. She had a lifeboat stored in the bow area with two additional in the stern section. What's something we've noticed about lifeboats since we've started this? Uh, That usually, or often, I guess, by the time they're needed, they're not usable yeah that's a pretty accessible they can't be deployed like it's kind of one of those things where in movies you just think oh get to the lifeboats and you're safe and it's the same as like when you see a fighter pilot eject in a movie like things work out but in real life it's extremely dangerous to do these things in this case the stern boats are unable to be launched one's tangled up in the cables and the other's dangling at an impossible angle which is the two things that tend to happen with lifeboats they either get tangled up or, you know, the ship is listing so badly that you can't even get into it. Yeah, that's like the thing is that I, I think that even even like in my head, like kind of before we start, saw the, all these stories is like you have this conception of, you know, getting to the lifeboats where the ship is sort of just stopped and it's going straight down. Mm-hmm. Like it has this perfectly flat angle and it's just sinking straight into the water. And that almost is never what happens. 
Right. When, when you need the lifeboats. Well, and, like, enjoy getting into the lifeboat in 65-mile-an-hour winds with waves. Mm-hmm. Like, it, it's just not that easy. It's just not that simple. Fortunately, the lifeboat that is kind of dangling out there at an angle, it's actually thrown clear of the wreck. Like, when the boat goes down, it's so buoyant that it pops off of its rigging and actually ends up floating in the water. So four men are able to reach this lifeboat. Only two of them would actually survive. And that's where we get the two survivors of this accident. They actually are just really fortunate that the lifeboat released itself. Mm-hmm. So the nearby vessel, Christian Satori, was actually able to observe the Bradley sinking. Crew stated that they saw the lights go out on the fore section of the ship while the aft section stayed on. So that's, again, like when it's separating from the generator. After a few moments, the lights in the aft section went out. And at that point, the Bradley is barely, barely visible in the darkness. They're basically seeing a silhouette. Shortly after that, they note that they see and heard a loud explosion. They saw red, yellow, and white columns of flame shoot out like of the water and up into the air. So they immediately respond to this situation, assuming that something has happened and the vessel that they observed blew up. They assume that it's an explosion, actually. They're only about four miles away when they're watching this, but due to conditions, it takes them about an hour and a half to get on scene. Other people that respond include the Plum Island Lifesaving Station. They're able to launch a 36-foot boat. However, it almost immediately isn't able to make any progress. Like it, it becomes apparent pretty quick that this vessel is just not big enough or powerful enough to make it through the waves, and they are actually forced to take shelter at Washington Island. Coast Guard cutter Sundu departs Charlevoix, Michigan, and was on scene in about five hours after the distress call went down. And additional support came from the Coast Guard cutter Hollyhock, which left Sturgeon Bay, Wisconsin, and took about seven hours to get on scene. So not a lot of quick responses here. You know, these guys are going to spend a lot of time in the water. Right. And this is November, correct? Yeah, it's cold. It's it's definitely cold. Um, You know, minutes and hours are critical here. Right. Uh, it's interesting, too. The captain of the Hollyhock describes their seven-hour trip there as a visit to hell, which has got to be something for a guy who's commanding a Coast Guard cutter on the Great Lakes, because you figure he has seen some stuff. Yeah, and that's not that's not a short hop. I mean, Sturgeon Bay is a considerable way away here from, from where this ship is having its issues. Right, so yeah. It's a long time to be out in that stuff. And so during the night, word begins to trickle in to Roger City. Obviously, some of the families are waiting up for them to get back because they know that they're going to be in the port. And many of those families end up making the drive from Roger City to Charlevoix, where the Coast Guard station is, expecting that that's where the survivors would be taken. So, you know, it's getting to be a kind of complex situation. You've got family members pretty quickly realizing something's wrong. And, you know, it's a it's a big event locally. It's a big thing. So at 8.37 on the morning of November 19th, the Sundew finds the forward life raft of the Bradley. At this point, the raft would have been in the water for about 15 hours, and it's found almost 17 miles away from where the Bradley broke up. And at the time of its discovery, three men are actually found alive. First mate Fleming, watchman Mays, and deck watchman Strazelki are all found alive. And unfortunately, the deck watchman actually passes away a short time after being rescued. And this is like when we talk about how minutes matter. 
as far as, as rescue, especially in these extreme conditions. It's very unfortunate that they're able to find him alive, but just not quick enough that he can be saved. Right. Fortunately, because we do have survivors, though, we're able to kind of get their account of what happened. The survivors state that they fired two flares almost immediately after the Bradley went down. They fired a third, but it was wet and didn't function properly. These are the columns of flame that the Christian Satori saw. Okay. They they literally watched them shoot off distress flares, but assumed it was an explosion. The survivors also indicate that the Satori passed within 100 yards of them without seeing them. Which is pretty crazy. Can you imagine how deflating that must be? Right, so this would have been right after they're all in the water. So at, at this point, if if another ship's able to see them at this point, potentially a lot more people survive. Yeah, I don't know. I mean, it, it doesn't sound like there's a lot of people with them. There's only four people in the boat. But I mean, oh, that right. even if they oh, had right. saved... Oh, right, this is just the, the four. Okay. Right, but even if they had saved all four of them, there have been twice as many survivors. So, I mean, it's definitely... Right. It is definitely unfortunate that the Satori tried to do the right thing but was unable to. And, I mean... Conditions are awful. It's pitch black. It, it, there's definitely no not the fault of the crew of the Satori that they would have, you know, not done this. And again, they're also a saltwater ship. They're not used to operating in the Great Lakes, and it, it's just a different world. But they attempted to do the right thing. Survivor Mays reports that his cork life jacket stayed buoyant, but he actually had to hold it down at times, and he struggled to keep it on in the heavy seas. So, you know... He's not buoyant. The life jacket is. It just wants to separate itself from him. It's almost working too well. Mm-hmm. Throughout the day of November 19th, 17 additional bodies are recovered, and all of them are found wearing life jackets. So it is clear that once the captain realized something was wrong, he did everything he could to try to have his crew survive, given the options that they had. It's clear that he gave the order to don life jackets and abandon ship. There were also many life jackets that were found floating, and they're still laced up. That means that they slipped off of the men who were wearing them. So the same issue that we talked about Mm -hmm. with that first cork life jacket, where it's basically just trying to come off. And honestly, these are probably about the exact same as the ones that the Milwaukee had. Like, not not a whole lot had changed in in that time period between them. So, I mean, it's, I don't know, it's it's really unfortunate. Like, you see something like that, like a floating life jacket that's laced up, and, like, what that implies is a, it's a very tragic thing. As I said, only two men end up surviving the sinking, and in total, 33 men are lost, and 15 of these men's bodies are never recovered. So, you know, there's 15 people still missing to this day, probably working down in the engine room, places like that. They probably never even had time to get off of the ship. The bodies that were recovered were taken to the town hall of Charlevoix for identification. And again, that's kind of that scene we were painting of the, the family members coming and definitely imagine that that was quite the local tragedy, um, you know, for, uh, you know, a lot of those communities in that part of Michigan. During the spring of 1959, the Army Corps of Engineers was able to locate the wreck about five miles northwest of Boulder Reef, just south of Gull Island. And once it was located, a survey was hired by U.S. Steel, who were the owners of the vessel. So they wanted to establish that the ship was lying in one piece. They wanted to establish that this was basically an act of God, that nothing could have been done to prevent this sinking. It's interesting that they would claim that because both survivors were adamant that the ship had broken up and separated on the surface, which could be indicative of maintenance or some other defect. Well, not even just that. It 
from what we were talking about, the the other ships also seem to have observed that, like, you know, half of the ship went black and went disappeared, and the other half didn't. So that seems to indicate a pretty wide consensus that, yes, this ship broke in half. Right. Yeah, like, something happened. So another issue with this survey is that it's done in secrecy and without an impartial witness. So this is... U.S. Steel hired a firm to do this, and only U.S. Steel is really looking at the results. It's definitely not the way that you ah. would tend to do a, uh, you know, open and fair investigation. We investigated ourselves, and we found that we did nothing wrong. Yeah, yeah, it's essentially that. It's like, yeah, we, we looked into this, and it's fine. Don't worry about it. Obviously, we'll get into that in a little bit, kind of what the, the Coast Guard report says. There's some contradictory evidence that is that comes out. So let's go ahead and talk about it. What happened to the Carl D. Bradley? Why did she sink? The Coast Guard report found that the Bradley sank from excessive hogging stresses. So hogging is like what we talked about, where the, you know, between waves, the hull's flexing, it's bending. There's all these different stresses that are being put on the hull. The report starts by saying that they conclude that the captain exercised poor judgment when he decided to leave the protection of the Wisconsin shore to venture into the open lake. So they do, although they say that, they do blame the captain for putting the ship in that situation. It's an interesting note that the commandant of the Coast Guard issues a report disagreeing with that ruling, and he cites the vessel's 31-year history and notes that the Carl D. Bradley was sailing smoothly before the accident. He concluded that she sank from undetected structural weakness or defect. So he doesn't put any blame on the captain. He just says, hey, there's something wrong with this ship that happened. There's nothing yeah. you could have done. Saying that, like, yeah, this was, it was rough seas, but the ship seemed to be fine up until a certain point. And kind of that old adage of, like, we, it's the Great Lakes. Like, you operate in those conditions. Like, it's not yeah, uncommon you, to sail in a storm. If you, you know, stay in port every time there's a storm, then nothing would get done. Right. So there's a maritime historian by the name of Mark Thompson, and he actually notes that the type of steel used in older vessels was known to be defective. Coast Guard technical experts were aware that the steel, the type used in the Bradley, could be brittle and notch-sensitive. However, they failed to put a program in place to remedy this. So it's something with older types of steel that were used in vessels where, over time, it doesn't keep up with the bending and flexing, and it becomes brittle. And you can have a catastrophic event when you're in extreme conditions. So I kind of fall in the middle there. I think that if the captain hadn't put the vessel in those conditions, it probably doesn't happen. But like you said, and like the commandant of the Coast Guard said, that's those are acceptable conditions with which you would operate. It almost seems to me like even if the captain had not put them in that position for this particular storm, just given the the nature of we'll talking about the structural defect, wouldn't it have probably happened at some point yeah i mean it's a repetitive use thing it's like um when you see like an explosive decompression event in an airliner where something maintenance wise was neglected and it's just a matter of how many pressurization cycles it goes through before it fails and that's what you're looking at here there's just one big catastrophic failure at a certain point so this is also likely what contributed to the loss of another lake boat the SS Daniel J. Morrell, which was lost in similar circumstances, and it's probably something that we'll cover in another story. It's just interesting that a lot of these ships sink under similar circumstances. Um, there's also some thought that the Edmund Fitzgerald 
you know, it would have been at the same time and place uh, as these vessels. Right. So it would make yeah, sense. Yeah, I imagine, I imagine if one of these ships suffers from a certain defect, they, many of them probably do because they're probably constructed under similar circumstances. Right, yeah. And that's like when you see a picture of the Carl D. Bradley, like, it's the classic Great Lakes freighter, like what you think of when you think of a Great Lakes freighter. All right, recommendations. So mechanical changes should be made to the way that lifeboats are deployed. That basically saying that we need to find a way that they don't get tangled up. We need to find a way that they can release from extreme angles. But clearly lifeboats aren't working as effectively as we would like them to. A second life raft should be mandatory on all Great Lakes cargo ships. And that's mainly because life rafts tend to be easier to deploy. It's a little bit lighter weight. And that helps you solve that launching from extreme angles problem. Six parachute flares should be on each lifeboat or life raft. Obviously, more flares. You can make your presence known more. Maybe if they had shot off another round of flares, the Satori could have realized that, hey, those are survivors. And we definitely need to, you know, thoroughly investigate that area. Also, cork and canvas life jackets should have a strap between the legs to help solve the problem of the jacket slipping off. And also a collar to support the neck. Basically saying, for life jackets to be an effective tool, they have to function more, you know, efficiently. Mm -hmm. They've got to stay on. They can't just be a hole in a piece right. of cork. And then in 1968, the NTSB recommended the Coast Guard take action to implement a progressive structural renewal plan on ships constructed before 1948. Basically saying, hey, we've got to do something about this. We can't have ships randomly breaking apart as they were sailing or as they are sailing. And this also has to do with some of the Liberty ships that were sailing still at this time. Like, uh, we'll talk about the Marine Electric at some point. It's a very similar situation there where the ship just breaks apart. Like, it, it just comes apart. Looking into it, it's, it's a lot of the, there's a lot of commonalities with this, this incident as well. So this was definitely a known thing that needed to be taken care of. All right, let's talk about the legal action that ensues from this case. At the time of her loss, the Bradley is insured for around $8 million dollars. And this is actually the most costly shipwreck in Great Lakes history at this time. As a result, U.S. SEAL offers a settlement of $660,000 to the families. And that is not per person. That is just a lump. I was going to say, is that per person? Because even that seems a little yeah, bit low. Yeah, even for the Maybe. time, that is not a ton of money. Yeah. yeah even adjusted for today's money, that's... Yeah, for that's for everyone to share. Uh, family members felt that U.S. SEAL was trying to avoid you know, fault in the incident and they do not accept that offer. The company maintains that the loss was an act of God. As a result of this, 10 families sued, seeking over $7 million. And it's interesting timing of when this court case is settled. It's actually settled by U.S. Steel just prior to the Coast Guard report coming out. So uh, it, I think once it becomes obvious that U.S. Steel is going to have some problems in this Coast Guard report... They decide to double their offer, and they they get the families <laughs> to settle for one point two five million. Which I think we did some rough gonna, math. How much was that? Uh, I think we talked before the show. I think we said it was like 11 yeah, eleven million. twelve million. So I mean, I think a lot of money, but not not a lot of money when you like are trying to value someone's life. Like it, it mm -hmm. you know what what value do you put on that? Right. So that kind of ends the legal side of it at that point. There have been a few wreck surveys done. Jim Clary, a marine author, and Fred Shannon, a maritime explorer, led two expeditions to the wreck site. 
their goal was to prove the survival survivor's account that the Bradley broke in two. And survivor Frank Mays is actually able to participate in these two surveys on the site. So the first expedition is in 1995. They end up being unable to prove that the Bradley broke up due to visibility, but they actually have like a submersible. So like they're under there able to you know interact with the wreck. Mays was able to place a plaque on the wreck as a memorial to the crew. So although they aren't able to prove anything, it's still a productive exploration and they're able to investigate the site. This was interesting to me because it, it talked about the poor mm-hmm. visibility and this, I guess, kind of highlights how poor the visibility can be down there in that. So they were able to find mm-hmm. the wreck, obviously, to, to put this plaque there, but not able to prove that it was in two pieces. So like showing how, how little of the area they can right. see. I guess is what this yeah, it really sounds highlights. absolutely terrifying to be down there. <laughs> That's why I don't do it. So a second expedition was conducted in 1997, this time with a remote operated vehicle. So they weren't going down there, but they had a, a drone basically that they're controlling. So they're able to obtain underwater video of two sections of the Bradley sitting upright in about 380 feet of water. So at this point, they're able to firmly establish that the vessel's broken in two. Uh, I'm assuming with that remote operated vehicle, they're able to get into places that they wouldn't have been able to otherwise. And you're able to see more, do more dangerous things since you're not risking anyone's life to do it. They actually have a quote from Frank Mays. He says, I saw it go down in two pieces on the surface, and now I've seen it in two pieces on the bottom of Lake Michigan. So he gets the vindication that he was correct when he experienced that, and he was correct when he saw it go down in two pieces. Which Probably helped bring a little closure to him for what that's worth, because I'm sure that it had to be quite the experience when you're getting interviewed by lawyers and, and insurance people and being told, like, you didn't see what you thought you, you saw and, and all that. Yeah, it's like it's a classic uh, classic legal situation where you've got the two survivors and, like, other ships saying, yeah, we saw this in two pieces and then you've got U.S. Steel and their lawyers. None of them right. were there. <laughs> no, you didn't. Yeah, no, I've heard didn't. a little talk of um, like a movie potentially around this story, which I feel like you could probably do because you could kind of have the action adventure in the beginning with like the wreck and everything and the survival in the water. And then you've got the legal stuff that, that ensues afterwards. Mm-hmm. There's so they much. They literally did that for the Miracle on the Hudson movie. It was like three minutes of action in the courtroom. That you could at least have a little more action in this one. You know, hey, if something like that happens, that would be pretty uh, interesting. I don't think Great Lake Shipping gets a ton of pop culture, uh, you know, clout too often outside of the occasional wreck of the Evan Fitzgerald interest that happens. But, uh, yeah, it would be interesting to see a movie like that, I think. We we need to counteract the uh, Great Lakes erasure <laughs> that happens. So, uh, so kind of my concluding thoughts here. It's pretty obvious that the loss of the Carl V. Bradley was absolutely devastating for Rogers City, Michigan. The vessel is a massive part of the town's identity and economy. And, you know, it's not the most famous shipwreck outside of the, the Great Lakes shipwreck kind of culture that exists. I don't think it's something that's in pop culture by any means, but it's still just utterly tragic for those local communities. And it is something that's still a part of their identity today. And there's so many small towns around the Great Lakes that you know, are like that, that are united in a tragedy, or at least united in the the idea of Great Lakes sailing and commerce. It's a really interesting community, and it's definitely just another story that I think is worth sharing. What other thoughts came to your mind as we were discussing? 
Well, when I read the notes and when we were discussing and I think the most salient detail of this is the community aspect mm-hmm. of it. Like, obviously, this is a this is business. You know, this is a, a ship and crew doing its job. But at the same time, this is a community of Roger City, Michigan, that is very heavily invested uh, in this endeavor, in this you know, commercial endeavor. So when the ship sinks and you lose so many people from the same community, it's especially tragic. Sort of cohesiveness of the crew, it, it kind of kind of adds an, an extra element to that. And what it reminded me of, obviously the, the situation is different, but it reminded me a lot of PAL's battalions. Uh, yeah, World War I. From, from mm-hmm. World War One. How in Britain, you know, they have these these volunteer drives to say, "Hey, you can sign up and you can you can go fight and you can be with all your friends and all your neighbors, all your buddies, and that's great." You know, during training and deployment. But you know, when you get to you know, summer nineteen sixteen, and it's it's uh, it's the Battle of the Somme, and you start uh, you start losing one hundred, two hundred, four hundred people from the same mm-hmm. community in the span of an hour or minutes in, in, in some cases, it has that same level of like just community devastation. Right. Like it's not, it's not that like one person or one family is grieving in the community. It is quite literally, it's impossible to be a part of that community and not be directly affected by this tragedy. Yeah. Like, and I was reading one of the articles uh, about, about this wreck and just, you know, just, it just listed out the the numbers of how many people, in this one not very large city in Michigan, how many people lost a father or a brother or a husband or a son, you know, here just in, because of this one ship going down where, you know, if you look at the raw numbers, it's not the worst shipwreck ever, you know, it's in the thirties, but in terms of what that does to a community when it's so concentrated like that is really yeah, I mean, you run into the situation of, you know, normally if there's a minor tragedy, well, the funeral home can still take care of that. But, like, what do you do when the funeral home owner lost someone or when the sheriff lost someone or the, the pastor? Like, the whole community, like, everyone's grieving. It's not a matter of just one person mm-hmm. that needs to be taken care of. And, yeah, it's it's definitely, like, the kind of lasting thing, I think, with this tragedy. Yeah, and I know that uh, Roger City, they continue to have, I think I think every year they have a... Like a memorial oh, I didn't look into that. I meant um, to look into that, actually. They just had, or not just, but they had the, the 50th anniversary not too long ago. But I think they, they continue to have like a like a museum and a memorial service for um, for that. Because again, because even even this this long after, it continues to be something that, you know, still has effects. I mean, you have people who probably lost a grandfather or a, a great uncle or, or whatever it may be. In this, and it, it still continues to have its effects. Yeah, definitely. I'm kind of. I'm glad we did this one. This is one that I know a lot of people wanted from. I've seen from Instagram and stuff like that. And I get it. Like, there's definitely. This is definitely like the the traditional Great Lake shipwreck story. You know, it has all the elements of blue collar, hardworking guys, and still kind of that glory age of industrial might in the American economy and everything. This is still a very important job that these guys are doing. You know. It also it has that element of not to get too into the the class struggle here, but it has it has that element of you know you have these hardworking people doing basically everything they can and more or less doing everything the right way. You know, we we even talked about the captain. How this is a case where the captain, upon realizing that the ship's in danger, 
does all that he can to, to save his crew, at least getting them in a position to survive. Mm-hmm. Whether they end up living or not, he puts them in a position where, right. where they can. So we have these people you know, doing their jobs and, and, and getting things done to the best that they to the best of their abilities. And then we have, you know, our evil scheming U.S. Steel trying to cover things up and say we did nothing. Yeah, wrong. you can definitely see where so the, um, the potential for a movie is in that. There's a lot of uh, sort of classic storylines yeah. in play there. Yep, I think it's a it's definitely an interesting story. Uh, I know we didn't get into all the little details in 45 minutes, but you know there's definitely a lot of resources out there. We'll link to some of those, and we just really appreciate you guys listening and everything and taking the time to check it out. Feel free to let us know how we're doing. If you have any recommendations, feel free to send them out. We'll definitely take a look at those. I hope everybody has a great week, and thank you for listening.